0: Hey, welcome back to The Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you feel like you should be rewarded for your time with The Journal Feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now then, for a quick look ahead, let's see what we'll be covering. First off, seatbelt sign and CT scans. Next, working it out with sciatica. After that, lowering intracranial pressure in pediatrics. Then safe transport for critically ill kiddos. And finally, focusing ourselves to a safe airway. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the fantastic... Alex Chen, Kevin Stauffer, Erin Lacey, Vivian Lay, and Lindsay Taylor. And without further ado, let's get on to the first article, which was titled Patients with Abrasion or Ecchymosis Seatbelt Sign Have a High Risk for Abdominal Injury, But Initial Computed Tomography is 100% Sensitive, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Seatbelts only became standard a good 70 years after the invention of automobiles. And if you work in a trauma center, then you'll know that seatbelts sometimes actually do harm to a patient in the process of preventing much worse injuries. A classic finding for the secondary survey would be the abdominal seatbelt sign, typically appearing as an abrasion or ecchymosis over the distribution of the seatbelt, which should ring bells to be wary of intra-abdominal injury. This sign as a red flag is so worrisome that many of these patients are often admitted despite negative findings on the initial workup for fear that someone has missed something. Let's see how necessary that fear really is. This was a retrospective case theory conducted at a level 1 trauma center which identified 425 emergency department patients with confirmed abdominal seatbelt sign through a chart review. 98% of those received a CT scan finding an overall incidence of 38.1% with intra-abdominal injury, and 13.6% of these patients went on to undergo exploratory laparotomies. This initial CT scan had a 100% sensitivity for detecting intra-abdominal injuries, meaning there was no patients with an initially negative scan that went on to have positive findings if CTs were repeated. Now this sounds Really quite positive, but keep in mind that the lower end of the confidence interval still dips down to 92.5%. And this was only a retrospective study. So perhaps feel quite reassured by a negative scan, but trust your gut in patients whose abdomens are still quite tender, and maybe don't send those ones home. In a spoonful, a CT abdomen pelvis had a 100% sensitivity for detecting intraabdominal injuries in patients with abdominal seatbelt sign. And now the second article titled, Physical Therapy Referral for Primary Care for Acute Pain with Sciatica, a randomized control trial out of the annals of internal medicine. For starters, don't give opioids for back pain unless you have a really good reason, something like cancer. NSAIDs on the other hand, that's different. They improve back pain, Studies show that adding Tylenol to ibuprofen doesn't add benefit though even though Tylenol is on the very base of our pain treatment ladder and usually you add things on top of it early activity is also a good plan and has been shown to provide improvements to symptoms so with that in mind what's the data on us sending patients for physiotherapy This was an assessor-blinded RCT comparing four weeks of physiotherapy to usual care for acute sciatica in adult patients, with authors studying disability scores of the patients at six months measured by the Oswestry Disability Index. All patients were healthy at baseline with no red flags that would have required further imaging or emergency department visits. What they found was a statistically significant difference favoring physiotherapy, with a disability index of negative 5.4 points oddly though after having established in advance that the minimum difference for clinical importance would be six to eight points they still concluded that physiotherapy improved disability and they're not wrong per se but still both groups with or without physiotherapy improved though from moderate to minimal levels of disability Other outcomes showed no differences in surgical consultations, imaging studies, or decreases in pain medications. Truth be told, these results aren't all that compelling. You might be better off sticking with a gym membership and some ibuprofen. In a spoonful, in outpatients with sciatica, physical therapy was statistically but not clinically effective at improving patient disability over usual care. And next, the third article titled Randomized Clinical Trial of 20% Mannitol versus 3% Hypertonic Saline in Children with Raised Intracranial Pressure Due to Acute CNS Infections out of the Journal of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. There are many things that you can do to decrease intracranial pressure. Some of the things are really simple, like raising the head of the bed. While other things involve giving osmotically active agents to try to coax fluid from the rigid confines of the skull. of comatose children with acute CNS infections have increased intracranial pressures, and targeting pressures less than 20 millimeters of mercury is associated with increased survival in this population. So what agent works best to get that survival benefit? This was an open-label RCT that assigned children aged 1 to 12 years old with acute CNS infections and a GCS less than 9 to receive treatment of either 3% hypertonic saline or 20% mannitol. The primary outcome of maintaining an average ICP of less than 20 millimeters of mercury over 72 hours, as measured by an intraparenchymal catheter, was attained in 79% of the hypertonic saline group, compared with only 54% of the mannitol group, for an adjusted hazard ratio of 2.6. And now, hopefully without getting too salty about it, hypertonic saline also showed increased cerebral perfusion pressures, higher modified GCS at 72 hours, lower mortality, shorter times on a ventilator, shorter PICU stays, and less neurodisability at discharge. These findings are in keeping with a prior RCT and are also pretty robust. Unfortunately, the data is less clear in the setting of trauma, but hypertonic saline still seems to be a good first choice for increased ICP in kids. In a spoonful, in children with CNS infections leading to increased intracranial pressure, treating with 3% hypertonic saline had better outcomes pretty much across the board when compared with 20% mannitol. And then next, we have the fourth article titled Adverse Events During Intrahospital Transport of Critically Ill Children, A Systematic Review, out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. In the ideal world, a patient could just sit tight and everything would come to them. Unfortunately, some things just aren't amenable to really moving, like some imaging, interventional procedures, surgery, and just getting the patient from, you know, the emergency department to intensive care. Transport poses certain risks, though, unfortunately, and these are inherent to moving a patient, changing equipment, handing off between providers, and more. Transport between hospitals is, of course, even harder. This article tackles the issue of patient transport for critically ill children, performing a systematic review of adverse events that occur during transport to accrue 40 articles representing 41,000 patient transports. We'll summarize some of the major categories of where things go wrong and highlight some of the examples and then how to hopefully prevent them. First, and most commonly, is respiratory decompensation. This includes hypoxemia, respiratory depression, apnea, tube malfunction, pneumothorax, and more. Next is hemodynamic decompensation. So you get your tachy and your bradycardias, your hypo and your hypertensions, cardiac arrest, you name it, if it can go wrong, it can go wrong on the move. Then there's equipment failure. Any line or tube that is connected to your patient, it is more liable to fall out when you're going somewhere. And the equipment attached to those lines is more likely to fail. After that is gaps in communication. Poor handover and missing documents make the person newly responsible for that patient ill-equipped to manage them. Then there's physiological changes. And this includes changes in temperature, electrolytes, glucose, you name it. And finally, medical errors. The dose and indications for ongoing medications may not be clear to the new physician, and this can lead to mistakes. So with all of these areas for disaster identified, there are some things that we can do to minimize the likelihood of impact. First things first, really consider if it's necessary to move a critically ill child. Next, medically optimize your patient before moving them. Resuscitate before you relocate. Checklists and standardized handoff tools can be helpful as well. Secure all lines and tubes prior to transport, being sure to double check all the equipment and ensure that the transporting team is qualified to care for the patient that they're moving. In a spoonful, transport is dangerous, but thoughtful and careful preparation can help. So before we get to our last article, I'd just like to point out that this article kicks off the Journal Feed's new partnership with the Society of Academic Emergency Medicines branch of Academic Emergency Ultrasound to bring you more POCUS-related content from the experts. And now the fifth article titled The Use of -of Point-of-Care Ultrasound in Emergency Airway Management out of the journal CHEST. The airway management worst case is of course the infamous can't oxygenate, can't ventilate, can't intubate. Management of emergency airways has a high risk of morbidity and mortality due to significant periprocedural complications. Methods to improve success in these situations are, of course, hot topics in literature. And one tool that may help with preparation for a difficult airway and to mitigate complications is our dear friend POCUS. POCUS can screen a patient for a difficult laryngoscopy. If the skin to epiglottis distance is greater than 27.5 mm, then this predicts a Cormac-Lehan laryngeal view of grade 3 or 4. To help with more planning ahead, correctly identifying the cricothyroid membrane can be done with ultrasound, showing an accuracy of 81%, which is about tenfold better than palpation alone. So you can mark this point before embarking on a difficult airway, just that you've got a backup. As further risk assessment, you can also assess aspiration likelihood by measuring the gastric volume and contents using the gastric antral cross-section area, where greater than 3.6 centimeters squared correlates to a higher risk of aspiration during induction. And this could also be used to screen patients prior to sedation in the emergency department. And lastly, endotracheal tube position confirmation with ultrasound is 99% sensitive and 97% specific, taking an average of just 13 seconds to perform. Now, it bears mentioning that most of these studies were done in the setting of non emergent airways, which could limit applicability to the emergency department. However, there is certainly some literature supporting the use of POCUS at least for ET tube conformation and a coricothyroid membrane localization with more to come I'm sure of course in order to make use of all this you will need to familiarize yourself with the sonographic anatomy and techniques but these are still good tools to have in your arsenal in the time of need in a spoonful pocus can be used as an adjunct to better understand an airway both before and after intubation And that's it for the summary. So let's do a quick review of everything that we learned today. First, trauma patients with the seatbelt sign had a hundred percent chance of having their intra-abdominal injuries found on the initial CT scan. Next, physiotherapy for sciatica showed a statistical improvement over usual care, but not a clinical one. Make sure that you've at least got ibuprofen on board since that still has the best evidence. And from the third article, pediatric patients with high intracranial pressures in the context of infection benefit more from hypertonic saline than they do from mannitol. And after that, before moving a critically ill child, make sure that they truly need to be moved, and then do everything in your power to make sure that things will go smoothly before they go anywhere. And finally, POCUS can be a helpful tool for your airway assessments, managing the risk of aspiration, and confirming successful tube placement. And that wraps it all up. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.